that song out of my head. No, me neither. I wish I'd have joined the Coast Guard. If I'd have known that, I'd have joined the Coast Guard. Uh, a lot of reasons to join the Coast Guard. Sure. sure. Kind of wish I had. Anyway, welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Uh, we're waiting for one of our favorite people on the planet to join us as a guest. Um, and uh, executive producer Hansen is gesturing plaintively. It's not a good sign. Hard to say. I just, I'm not going to start this story unless I know I have time for it. What do you think, Michael? Read the tea leaves in there. You can hear his end of the conversation. All right, then. The Today Show. We'll is, go back to Jack singing Thunder Island. The Today Show is actually reporting on the sexy texts before between Jeff Bezos and his uh, his girlfriend. And I can't believe they're 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 doing it under the guise of this is a business story because it has affected Amazon stock. Yeah, his announcement of his yeah. uh, divorce, in, yeah. at least in theory. But so they're using that as an excuse to just get into the salacious details of a rich guy and his uh, his divorce. Sure, yeah, and, and we'll read some of those coming up later, and then talk about how untoward and immoral it is that anybody's reading them. exactly but you have to hear them to understand how sure. immoral it is of course well please welcome to the armstrong and getty show uh one of my heroes i'd never heard his name until about a year or so ago peter bogosian is one of uh three academics uh including uh professors uh, uh, helen pluckrose and james Lindsay, who unleashed some of those brilliantly fraudulent research papers on the academic journals of our land and other lands, got uh, several of them published and helped expose some of the ridiculousness of modern academia. Uh, the latest twist in the story is that he might be in, in pretty serious career trouble. But anyway, uh, Peter Bogosian joins us. Uh, doctor, how are you, sir? Good. You can call me Peter. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, it's it's no problem. In fact, as I said, it really is kind of an honor and a pleasure because uncovering truth is what we're kind of passionate about around here. And sometimes it's right. convenient for, quote unquote, our side of things. And sometimes right. it's not. But if you're going to be a truth teller, you got to tell the truth. So. Well, if you're going to be a truth teller, you need an environment in which you don't feel threatened to voice your opinion. Okay. And increasingly, we're seeing universities under the sway of dogma and political correctness. And many, cons- and I'm saying this as a, I'm a liberal, uh, so I just want to make my broad orientation clear. This is not that I'm con- some conservative who has an axe to grind. And we're seeing libertarian students, conservative students, and Christian students, and I'm an atheist, by the way. Uh, afraid to voice their opinion, and nobody is benefited from that. Everybody is harmed by that. How old are you, and how long have you been doing what you're doing? I'm 52. So you've been around a while. Has it changed drastically just in your adult lifetime? Yeah, it's changed in the last four years, and Jonathan Haidt writes about that in in his recent book, The Coddling of 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 the American Mind. It has absolutely changed, and it's deeply concerning for me. I'm deeply concerned about my students' education. I'm deeply concerning that, concerned that students don't get to hear and engage the other side of issues. And I'm deeply, I'm deeply discouraged and um, um, afraid might not be the right word, but I'm, I'm actually, I've passed the point of concern and I'm now in the point of worry about the erosion of trust in our public institutions. Well, I think being afraid would be a perfectly reasonable response if the current trend enforced, you know, uh, with with fists and, and, and bike locks and firings right. is that you arrive to school, to college, university, to hear one set 
of universally agreed upon ideas and right. no other ideas shall enter here is it's bizarre and terrifying it is and we we need to create these spaces where people can ask questions without being smeared as a racist a bigot a homophobe a nazi an alt-right person we need to go back to this idea that Look, nobody is benefited from the fact that people don't get to hear sincerely held views of conservatives, for example, or of Christians, for example. Nobody benefits. In fact, everybody is harmed because then they don't develop a response to those ideas and they become brittle, right? So when they hear an idea that doesn't comport with what they already believe and they've never heard it before, they've only heard one side of the story, one orthodoxy. Then they freak out. They they become offended. They cry. They break down. But they don't engage the arguments. And what you said before is true. It's like it's become less of truth seeking. And when we did these papers, it's that these folks had placed an agenda before the truth, and that's the problem. Well, the other part of the problem, of course, is at some point the other side might might gain the power of the day, and then your ideas are not allowed. So unquestionably, right. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to be in a position of explaining what learning is because that's so scary. But the expression of an idea that's wrong is often the best way to illustrate which ideas are right. You don't know what a happy, functional family you have until you see a dysfunctional family. You don't know why liberty is important until you hear somebody advocate for oppression. I mean, I just... I don't know. I'm that's right. I'm glad I don't do it for a living like you do, Peter. I don't know well, how the, you endure. The opposite. The I mean, the corollary to that is, what do we have if we don't have dialogue? We we have violence, right? Well, and propaganda. We have propaganda, but we don't have. I think even though you and I might have differences in policy opinion, and maybe there's a substantive, both of us believe at some point. And this is what makes us capable of engaging in this conversation with each other. We both value what's true. We don't resort to our subjective experiences and just, I don't beat you over the head with that. I present my evidence. You present your evidence. And then we hash that idea out, right? That's what we do. That's what responsible adults do in a democracy. Well, I'm I'm very glad... I'm very glad that you're a liberal atheist, because just like only Nixon could go to China, you know, only another liberal atheist is going to be able to call out universities. Otherwise, if it were me, then it's just so easy to do to dismiss me. Peter Bogosian is an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University, putting aside the fact that my mind was completely boggled by philosophy and, and, and my poor teacher's time was wasted on trying to cast their pearls before this swine. Um, I understand that uh, now academia is, is lashing back and trying to punish you under rules that are intended to like prevent bizarre medical experiments on subjects. What's going on? So, so I've been... So first, let me just set it up. I, so I actually, simp- I really do sympathize with the administration situation. I, I don't know what kind of pressure they're under behind the scenes, but the Portland State University newspaper is called The Vanguard. And I think 11 of my colleagues published an anonymous letter. Uh, it was basically a smear campaign with a smear photo. And that if that's anything to go by, I, I think they're under some pretty significant pressure by these you know, shadowy figures behind the scenes. So they, they need to make a difficult decision here, right? So, so they're either going to use their institutional power to support me in the academic pursuit of truth, or 
they're going to side with the grievance studies bullies and, and who, who are pressuring them from behind the scenes, right? So one charge is I didn't receive IRB support, and I've been posting responses online about that. And IRB is called Institutional Review Board. And the other charge, and this, that's a serious charge, the other charge is extremely serious. It's a fabrication of data charge. And that could be, the penalties for that could be termination of employment. When your entire point was to, to, to illustrate how your, your discipline and allied disciplines had lost all of their discipline and that they were, well, how would you characterize it? Spreading untruth, uninterested in whether something was true or not, uh, enforcing one particular ideology, a mix of all of the above? Yeah, somewhat of a mix of all, uh, all of the above. They've placed an agenda before the truth. Their scholarship is corrupt. And again, you're right, this is Nixon's going to China. This is someone, these people are on the far left. I am not on the far left. I'm a classical liberal. So I'm saying this is someone who shares these basic moral commitments, basic moral commitments. But the way to do that is by not making stuff up. The way to do that is by rigorously examining issues of race, gender, and sexuality. We need to look at those issues and those areas, but we need to do it right. And my hope was, our hope was, through this project, that we would help these disciplines clean themselves up. I have not seen any indication of that at this time. Wow, that is incredible. I mean, when this this whole thing first hit, I thought, you know, this is really going to change things. They're going to have to get their acts together. But you haven't seen... Because it was so clearly an unmasking so of what was could, going on. Could the, yeah. pe- could the people looking over these papers and deciding whether to publish them, could they not tell the difference? They can't tell the difference between real and satire? Because I think no, the most the of us... Point. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. That's the point. It took people outside the system. So when you live in these little ecosystems, every single thing becomes normal. It's all like, oh, yes, of course, there's a patriarchy. And of course, there's this vast conspiracy. So for these, they couldn't distinguish these absurd papers like fat bodybuilding or that men should self-penetrate anally to to remediate their transphobia. Good morning. Dog parks are petri dishes for canine rape culture, you know. So, so they couldn't differentiate because they're too far down the rabbit hole. But that, you know, that's only one part of the problem. The other problem is that these folks, most of them, most of them have tenure. They have jobs for life. They're using these papers. They're teaching them to our kids, and they're indoctrinating them in this ideology that is totally untethered to reality. So they actually believe that stuff. Oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. Wow. Well, and and there are things I believe to my bones that, you know, it could be would shock uh, Peter here, might shock you, Jack. I don't know. I keep them to myself. But I'm not <laughs> going to enforce them with jackbooted thugs or run people out of the profession who disagree with me. That's just, it's right. repugnant. So, so here's a very important way to think about this problem. So let's say that you have things that you believe, and I have things that I believe. And these, every, our brains, as Michael Shermer says, our brains are engines of belief. So here's what these folks have done. This is Brett Weinstein's idea. It's called idea laundering. So they have these ideas, you know, whatever is the, their ideas about transphobia, Nazis everywhere, whatever the idea these folks happen to have. So they get together and they make a journal and they publish these articles in journals, and it's called idea laundering. An idea goes in on one side, and it comes out the other side as knowledge. 
So then they point to these papers as knowledge and say, look, look here, check, see this. I don't need faith like a Christian does to justify my belief. I have peer-reviewed evidence. I have data. So I can say confidently that I know this. So that's the difference between me and you. And, I mean, that's the difference between us and them. And, but, that's interesting. But your point, then, is that a lot of that fact, a lot of that truth that was published in those publications was, well, hogwash. It was dirty laundry going in. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally untethered to reality. The whole thing is it's make-believe land, all of it. Boy, that, uh, that Hegel was something, wasn't he? Talk, talking with a professor of philosophy, thought I'd throw that in. I'll be checking the sports pages while you two talk about this. Peter uh, Peter Bogosian is an assistant professor of philosophy at Portland State University. If you're just tuning in, he's one of the trio of academics who so brilliantly and importantly uh, passed off some ridiculous faux research papers as the truth uh, to help expose some of the problems in modern academia. Um, you know, listen, Peter... I, 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 this this is over the top, and I know it is, but congratulations in finding yourself in roughly the same spot as Copernicus. I mean, for instance, or, you know, nobody's... Well, I, I, you're I probably not going to get burnt at a stake or anything, but uh, well, welcome I, look, to Galileo I, land. I appreciate your support, and I, I want to say a few things. People are sick and tired of the extremes. You know, there's really a fringe group of leftists and a fringe group of people on the far right that are... Pr- preventing us from engaging in any kind of civil dialogue, any kind of productive politics. Now, the pond in which I swim in academia, that happens to be on the left. So, you know, the vast majority of people, they don't like this rampant political corruptness. They don't like the fact that we, don't, we can't talk to each other, we can't engage each other, we can't have truth-seeking conversations. People are sick of it. And so what we need to do is to reach across the aisle so that we can have these conversations. And we have to say that enough. I mean, people have had enough of this stuff, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about Jonathan Haidt the other day, who who said everywhere he goes, every college campus, he asks, do you have that uh, call-out culture here where you're terrified somebody's going to call you out as a bad person, ruin you? Everybody yep. says yes. And then he says, how many of you like that? And there are virtually no hands. You're right. It's fringes controlling the uh, conversation of the day and in, in vicious fashion. Right, um, and what we need to do is, do we have a couple more minutes? Well, we gotta, yeah, go ahead, fire away. So what we need to do is we need to understand the source of this. You know, where is this coming from? This is coming from these journals. This is coming, and these, and these journals are then using these papers to teach students, and we're indoctrinating. The professors are looking at the education system as an ideology mill, so they are indoctrinating all their students. But, for example, the, the letters from students, academics, and high-profile in, intellectuals that I've gotten, I just can't, can't keep up with them. They support the, the grievance studies, and people are sick and tired of university administrators and the cadre of bullies operating in these disciplines. You, me, other people, students, the public, we're saying enough is enough. We have had enough of these people. We have had enough of the bullying. It is enough. And now people are putting their names to these letters. So people are not scared anymore to speak out about being called a racist or a homophobe or a Nazi. We're sick of it. Peter you're, you're, an, you're an important person. Yeah. Hey, listen, if they uh, if they do the utterly wrong thing and you lose your gig, come stay in my house as long as you need to. And I'm not kidding. 
And we'll, Thank you. It's very kind of you. We'll get through this together. Hey, keep fighting the good fight. Stay in touch. Um, and, and great to talk to you, Peter. Thanks a million. I appreciate it. Thanks, go, guys. Go Have get him, man. Wow. How dang good was that? Oh, I'm telling you. I am all fired up. I don't know what to do exactly, except keep doing what we've been doing for quite some time. And also tell you, support FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which is an incredibly important organization that fights what Peter was talking about. Greg Lukianoff, associated with FIRE, was the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, which is the book that Jonathan Haidt was referenced in that interview. Indeed, sir. The fact that those people who read those things and said, yeah, well, we'll put this in our journal, they believe it. They're so far out there, they've been doing this so long, they actually believe that stuff. And when they found out that somebody tested the utterly corrupt procedures of their world, they wanted to hurt that person, not fix their procedures. Text line 415-295-KFTC. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Romantic text messages between Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and his new girlfriend have leaked to the press. Well, it depends on your definition of romantic. It's a lot of, yeah, baby, do you like that? Then here's a list of other things you might be interested in. Hey, that's a pretty good, well-crafted Amazon joke. Here are other things you might be interested in. I wonder if he ever promises a date on Friday, but the date doesn't actually happen until Saturday. Guaranteed we'll go out Friday. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, That conversation we just had was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, Peter Bogosian, that was fabulous. Oh, by the way, Positive Sean reminds me that... um, one of the serious bits of academic he's trouble uh, trouble he's in. I'm sorry, that sentence was a, ought to be studied by science. Uh, the, some of the academic trouble he's in has to do with the fact that they didn't actually examine the genitals of 10,000 dogs as they claimed to in their parody paper. That was so over-the-top ridiculous, at first read, any normal person would say, this is a joke. Right, which was their point indeed. Uh, you know... I feel bad that that uh, Peter and his uh, colleagues, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, will probably suffer serious consequences. But I'm not surprised. You cannot speak truth to power if that power is corrupt and expect to get away scot-free. You're going to get bruised. Um, but again, he can come stay at my house. So he's got that going for him. What's coming up in your news, Marshall Phillips? New twists and turns in the battle over the border wall. We'll give you an update there. You also got uh, President Trump, one of his inner circle, about to testify before Congress. And remember Senator Harry Reid out of Nevada? (laughs) He has got a new cause, and we'll get into that for you coming up. Go away. He's still alive. Yes. Should probably text my wife. I've invited a rebel philosophy professor to stay (laughs) at our place, honey. (laughs) You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. This. I think the Today Show did 15 minutes 
on Jeff Bezos and his girlfriend claiming they were doing news, <laughs> but just so they could read the, the, the texts from the National Enquirer between him and his lover. That's where we are as a society. Super. So you want to be famous. <laughs> Let's get the news now with Marshall Phillips. Well, today, the first time some government employees are not going to be getting paychecks, roughly 800,000 government workers affected by the partial government shutdown that started December 22nd. The shutdown prompted by President Trump's demand for several billion dollars to help build a wall on the Mexican-U.S.-Mexican border and Democrats' refusal to go along. Meanwhile, the president's going to be hosting another roundtable discussion on border security, this at the White House today. Any chance that when the smoke clears, this will end somehow, I'm assuming, with little happening. But when the smoke clears and you're looking at it from a year distance... The lasting impression will be Trump wanted to do something about illegal immigration and the Democrats didn't. Any chance that that's what emerges out of this? That'll certainly be the effort on the Republican side, and I think they've got a decent chance of selling that narrative. The frustrating part to me is that, you know, I can not only could I author a compromise that both sides and and I'm not, by the way, if you're listening, I'm not claiming I'm some sort of public policy genius. I'm claiming it's so easy I could do it. Um I could craft some sort of compromise and the spin each side would present to make themselves look like the winner. Give me 15 minutes I can get that done. So it's just mystifying to me, you know, I guess they just think they're getting more political advantage both sides by holding out. Well, I was reading uh, some of Jonah Goldberg's stuff on the Twitter the other day. He he believes that they're both sides believe they can get the rare I win you lose result. Right, not a win-win or a mostly win kind of win, but a I won and you got punished. Both zero sides, sum, baby. Both sides think they can pull that off, and as long as that is the feeling, I, I don't think you ever get anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, before the uh, roundtable meeting today, Trump was tweeting, "Quote: The steel barrier or wall should have been built by previous administrations long ago. They never got it done. I will." Without it, our country cannot be safe. Criminals. Well, the crazy part is they did get a lot of it done. They went ahead and did it, and all the Democrats voted for it. Yep. Criminals, gangs, human traffickers, drugs, and so much other big trouble can easily pour in. It can be stopped cold. End of tweet. So they're getting ready for the roundtable meeting. We'll see what comes out of that. Meanwhile, Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, is going to be testifying publicly before so a house... Who? Before a House committee next month, in a hearing that could serve as the opening salvo for the Democratic effort to scrutinize Trump, his conflicts, alleged conflicts of interest, and ties to Russia, the House Oversight and Reform Committee announced that Cohen's going to appear before the panel on February the 7th. So that's when he will be brought forward. And did to... you say that's a public thing or not? Yes, public. Oh, God. Yes. That'll be a news day. You know that... what they're going to do afterwards, right? Take polls. <laughs> What polls? What polls? Some um, of all of them? It's going to be a lot of people trying to score points questioning him, huh? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it will it will be a dog show with but, ponies. But he's trying to portray it as he got sucked into this evil man's power orbit. Poor innocent Michael Cohen. Yeah, exactly. So Democrats might right. actually be like friendly to him, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Who would have beaten him me up and Comey. Hate him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they wanted to come up behind him on a street and beat him down with a brick until the moment that he was their greatest hero. And then, you know, they wanted to hear everything he had to say about Trump. It'll be the same thing with with the the mobbed up fixer Cohen. I know America's been concerned about this, but you you can now relax because nutrition labels are indeed coming to the beer aisle. Starting next month, packs of Bud Light will have 
prominent labels showing the beer's ingredients, calories, and the amount of fat, carbohydrates, and protein in a serving. The main ingredient I'm interested in when I drink a beer is alcohol. Yes. Will it show me what percentage of my problems I'll forget after <laughs> drinking one? That's, exactly. a, that's a good suggestion. Daily allowance of problems forgotten. <laughs> what percent will they be more attractive right. as I drink? Ah, right. Never mind them, me. <laughs> and on an entirely different note, remember uh, former Nevada Senator Harry Reid? Well, I, he, he's I, got, I think I may have said some harsh things about him through the years. I don't recall specifically. Well, Reed is still around. He's got an idea for uh, that he's calling for. He wants the federal government to spend more money for UFO research. <laughs> okay. <laughs> During a recent interview, the Democrat and former Senate Majority Leader says many members of the military fear reporting possible sightings because they are afraid those reports will hurt their careers. He also said he's hoping to set up a meeting between key senators and pilots who have seen strange things. Reed went on to say he doubts little green aliens exist, but he does think more should be done to study the possibility of extraterrestrial life. All right. Quit claiming Mitt Romney hasn't filed his taxes when you know it to be a lie, you lying liar. <laughs> to remind you, the government's famous secret... Come back to your mom's brothel. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Hey, that's out of bounds. To remind you, the government's famed secret airbase, Area 51, is in Nevada, and Reed says he has visited it many, many times. Awesome. Super. There you go. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. As if we don't all have enough trouble exercising and not eating too much, it turns out our mind's more powerful than our own DNA when it comes to this. Stupid mind. Which is kind of interesting in light of the whole, uh, you know, 23andMe getting your DNA and finding out your genetics and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, so this study is disturbing. Or maybe you can harness your own mind for a good. I don't know. Stay tuned. I doubt it. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the, of the nation. kids you know this baby shark song you know the baby shark song yes the song's like 90 seconds long it's, it feels like it goes on longer than shark week it goes on and on and on this, this it came this song i looked into it it came from either france or germany unbelievably that song made it onto the billboard chart it debuted it is number 32 on the billboard chart right after like diplo or something like that Baby Shark is so big now, it just got engaged to Ariana Grande, and they're very happy together. How this got into the top 40, I really don't know, but I, I don't think I'm overreacting when I say whoever is responsible for it should be locked in prison for the rest of their lives, and then when they die, their bodies should be fed to the very sharks they sang about. I don't hate it that much. But no, uh... no, no. Well, it's as we were informed via email, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. It's a charming little uh, activity song for little kids that was turned into an earwormy, nasty internet profit, greedy sensation. Yeah, and I like brought, everything is these days. 
And I brought up Baby Shark at the dinner table last night thinking I was about to inform my children and wife of some charming, cool thing. And they're right. all like, yeah, we know about Baby Shark. And my son said, yeah, we got all these made-up versions of it at school that we sing. And yeah, Dad, Baby Shark is so last week. Even my homeschooled child who has no access to the outside world is aware of it. <laughs> and, and I wasn't. Somewhere. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, they figured this out, which is troubling. You can get various kinds of genetic tests where you'll find out, you know, you have a predisposition toward being overweight. Or there is even such a thing as a predisposition to a low capacity for exercise. Hey, I got that. (laughs) Well, yeah. But this this is the thing they figured out, though. If you tell people that, even if it's not true, they will respond accordingly. You can tell people who don't have those problems... You, you're predisposed to not want to exercise much and to eat too much. You yeah. will not exercise much and you will eat too much. Wow. Just wow. because that's in your mind. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's does, in my DNA. Why find it? Does the, does the opposite work? You know, I don't know. If, if 23andMe, who I actually went to and found out I have more Neanderthal DNA than 99% of the population. That's right. He's 99% Neanderthal. That's not precisely correct, but uh, I do wear a fur loincloth. Uh, but if they were to come to me and say, hey, Joe, turns out you have the, uh, the you really love to exercise gene, would I find myself working out more? I could see it. Wouldn't you feel like you're letting yourself down if you don't? Even though you are anyway. I, I, I'm not even sure I could explain it, but yes, I would feel positive and like energized about exercising. And if you told me you're predisposed to just not want to exercise, I'd think, oh man, I'm going to have to really work hard to overcome that. Yeah, and then uh, given that uh, that moment we all face so often, don't we, of, I ought to, but I don't want to. <laughs> Which way that goes if you find out, oh, yeah, you got the lazy gene. I mean, that's not going to help you. You got it is the not, lazy gene. You see the couch over there and the uh, the treadmill over there, and you're thinking, you know, I do have a genetic predisposition to head for the couch. It's not my fault. You know what it's gotten my family off the couch? A Christmas present? Air hockey. Ah! Oh. A timeless <laughs> yes. class. Man, we've been playing a lot of air hockey. What's old is new. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, I, did I, I love air hockey as a kid. I'm all Woo. about the bank shots that blow my kids' minds. Oh, yeah. You think you know where it's coming from? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> little sleight of hand, a little whoop, whoop. Yeah. Click, oh, click. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. and it's in the back of the goal again. Every once in a while, I give them a free shot. I just put my hands behind my back. Go oh, ahead. no taunting. Oh, yeah. That's 15 yards <laughs> on the ensuing kickoff. You ain't got it in you. <laughs> I don't think you have the steady hand. <laughs> That's fabulous. Couple of crime stories around the. Na- Do you want crime stories or cheese stories, Jack? I have. That's my choice. What, a, what kind of a weird <laughs> cheese? Of binary choice is that? Cheese, of course. Michael says. Mike, could just hit you with the uh, the headline: Florida man gets caught with three syringes in his rectum. Says they aren't his. Oh, so I guess oh. we're going with the crime stories. Well, or is that a uh, cheese story? <laughs> so, um, no, it's crime. Crime. They're not yours. Is that really? Is that better? How do you suppose they got up there? <laughs> I don't know. Beats me. I don't know. I'm, is that my? It's not. I don't have to answer that question. You're the cops. So you figure it out. Wow. Wow. Two cheese-related stories. <clears throat> Number one, Costco, and I am not making this up, is selling a 27-pound tub of mac and cheese. That lasts for 20 years. Will keep for 20 years, or if I eat it every day, it will take me 20 years to eat it? 
It has a 20-year shelf life. Okay. Yeah. I uh, thought once, that was a once, 20-year supply. Of- well, no, I think once you open it, then the uh, clock's a ticking. Okay, so this is for my uh, my uh, bomb shelter or whatever. Uh, yeah, you're uh, coming apocalypse <laughs> for uh, my weekend plans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It uh, a lot it of has, football games this weekend. <laughs> it has a mere 180 servings of mac and cheese for you. Of course, you know those servings are ridiculous. Probably only about 90 for the hungry young man. You know, I'm not a prepper, and I'm not paranoid, and I'm not worried about some dystopian future. But I suppose you could make the argument that everybody ought to have one of those. In their closet, just in case. You absolutely can make that argument, and and quite a few gallons of water. Absolutely. If, if you go to a Super Bowl party this year and you're asked to bring something and you don't oh, bring the 27-pound tub of macaroni yeah. and cheese, you are no friend of mine, <laughs> That's sir. brilliant. Well, you're right about the water thing. That's what yeah. you mean. Of course, what would happen where I don't have any water? I don't know. Oh, that reminds me. So uh, recently, in spite of my youth and manliness, I had to get a new hip. Uh, for various reasons, including, you know, sportsy stuff and probably just bad jeans. Is this a cheese story? Um, <laughs> n- no, but it's related, oddly enough. And uh, the, uh, the the nurse who came to my home to check on me a couple of times, make sure my wound was not, uh, you know, uh, infected or anything like that, among other things. Um, she was mandated by the federal government to ask us if we had an emergency plan. I wouldn't answer that question. She's a nice lady. I wasn't going to screw yeah, with her job. I do. I do just because I have to. I just, the way I'm built, I don't answer those questions. I will not answer that question. That I, is ridiculous. Yeah, I know. That the federal government asks you that question I know. for a doctor to come I look at your I was braced for her to say, do you have any firearms in the house? Would you have answered that? I wouldn't no, answer I that question. No, I would decline that one. An emergency plan? Well, right, exactly. Do you know if all cell phone service was knocked out, where you and your family would meet up? And I'm like, well, my kids are scattered to three different states and... I guess I'd come home. What if you couldn't come home? You mean an emergency like if the government was so intrusive that if I have a medical problem, they start asking me about my personal life? Yeah. That sort of an emergency? Yeah, exactly. So uh, we were urged to develop a plan and amass dried goods and, and potable water. Oh, good In Lord. case of, I don't know, if you saw my neighborhood, I don't know what would that happen. That is crazy. A wildfire, I suppose. It, nobody's bothered by this but me, I'm sure. But that is oh, I'm, crazy. I'm bothered by the that stupidity of it, mostly. The nurse comes to look at your hip, and by the government makes her ask if you've got an emergency plan. That's amazing. What's your contingency plan in case of an EMP attack? (laughs) Yeah. As you were talking about yesterday on a different topic, if you're if the government if they if she's got to do that, how do you not take it further? Well, right. Do you have a spare tire in your car? Right, Or exactly. whatever else. Yeah, I would have messed with her. I would have said, I have jumper cables and extra shoes. There you go. <laughs> right, exactly. Extra oh, shoes. yeah, we got, uh, we got 50 cases of saltines right there. It's uh, behind a locked door. Otherwise, I'd show you. Um, <laughs> I have an extra pair of shoes. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Thomas Paine, if you're done with your rant, I'll get on to the second cheese story. All right. Um, uh, America's stockpile of cheese is near a record high. Uh, partly because of changing taste, but also because of the current tariff uh, environment. Uh, let's see. Lucas Fuss, the director of Dairy Market Intelligence at High Ground Dairy, a consulting firm. You know, that's a, it, it, what percentage of jobs that people feed families on make a living? Sooner or later, they retire. They go play a little golf or whatever. What percentage of those jobs you've ne- you never heard of until you're out of college? This guy is a cheese industry consultant. Has anybody... Anybody in the history of the world ever said, 
I'd really like to be a cheese consultant, Daddy. Told their high school guidance counselor that. Right. Well, then we probably ought to get you into the cheese consultancy program at State U. Well, you better get those math scores up or something. (laughs) Americans eat a lot of cheese, Jack. Almost 37 pounds per person per year. No way. Way. How many pounds? 37. A pound of cheese, over a pound of cheese a month. A pound and a half of cheese a month. On the other hand, we are experiencing a 1.4 pound uh, per person cheese uh, surplus, uh, partly because we we're making cheeses that aren't as hot. I'm, this, no, uh, et cetera, I'm, so. I'm no dieter, but uh, I don't think I'm eating a pound of cheese a month. You ever uh, get government cheese in your life? Uh, one time. My, yeah, my roommate and I did, did when we were super young and poor. My roommate did because he qualified for it. We both did, actually. Mm. Um, but he just went and got a block of cheese. Giant block of cheese. Enormous block of cheese. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was thoroughly decent cheddar cheese. It was fine. It was a gigantic block of it. You would have to eat so much cheese, you'd be constipated for a month um, to finish it before it went bad. There was just no way to keep it. Well, I suppose you could freeze it. I believe I had some when I was a uh, when I was a youth, and my uh-huh. mom was uh, raising me by herself. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why he went and got the cheese. We were fine. I mean, we we qualified as poverty, but we were fine. It's not like we were starving. Trump's trade policy has also played a role in the cheese apocalypse. A sentence I read for one reason alone, and I'll bet you can guess what it was. (laughs) Cheese apocalypse. Do I have an emergency plan? What the H? Yeah. First, we stop, drop, and roll. Yeah. I'm going to tackle any nurse that's within reach. (laughs) Make sweet love to her. Hmm. You are listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.